Before we start, John, it's December. This is Discount December. We're going to give 10% discount on Patreon. And what you get for following us on Patreon is three things. Ad-free podcasts twice a week. You get two macroeconomic courses, not just one, two free. And also from January, I'm going to be answering questions once a fortnight. We're going to have an online macro session. And if you want to go up a level with us, you get a 10% discount for signing up on Patreon right now in December. Patreon.com forward slash Dave McWilliams. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. How are you doing there? It's podcast time. It is nearly Christmas. It's Christmas week. Hope you're all right. Hope you're surviving. And I hope, like ourselves, you're not too fed up with the last couple of days and the lockdown and the restrictions and all that carry on. John, how are you? I'm okay. Max. You're just all right. You're I'm just, just all, right. all right. I'm just, oh man. When when that announcement of the eight o'clock curfew, the I know. first thing I thought about was bang goes midnight mass. I'm <laughs> midnight mass. Well, you know, you might mention midnight mass when you said bang goes midnight mass. The curfew is for eight o'clock on everything. Yeah. Except midnight mass on Christmas Eve. Really? Is, is yeah, the church got a derogation, <laughs> as always. The Catholic <laughs> Church slipped in a little bit of, it'll be all right, but COVID doesn't affect the Holy Ghost. <laughs> so you can now go to Midnight Mass, which was never at midnight, because it was always brought back to about nine o'clock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because everyone, everyone got too scootered, right? <laughs> and now you can actually, so you, the worst thing is what they, they forget, right? Because they've actually allowed Midnight Mass to go ahead at eight, Think about it. Yeah. And the pubs to close at eight, they're going to get exactly the same thing at midnight mass, except at eight o'clock. Yeah. And, <laughs> and they're all in for the holy wine. Exactly. <laughs> let's go for a nightcap. <laughs> Actually, let's do that. Yeah. It's the only show in town. We may let's as well do go. That on Christmas Eve. Let's do that for Christmas Eve. Why not? That's it. That's it. That's a date. Anyway, anyway, so all is good. I tell you, I, interesting, on this day, did you know, I'm going to give you some auspicious, now, now that I'm looking out here behind me, on this day, on this day, mm-hmm. 100 and, 187 years ago, yeah. 1834, 1834, 
the very first commuter train that ever ran, ran between Dublin and Dunleary in the world. Really? So the first, so think of this, this is 180 Jam to the rafters. Jam to the rafters, exactly. <laughs> no social distancing. Think about it. Dublin to Dunleary was the first ever suburban railway built for commuters 187 years ago, right? Wow. And think about the rolling stock now. It is still the only functional commuter railway in Ireland, the Dart service. That's true, the yeah. Only one. Yeah. So 187 years later, what have we built? <laughs> Nothing. Nothing. Anyway, there we go. We, John, we were gonna, we were gonna quite. Actually, you know, speaking before, before we quite down at Christmas parties. What about the UK? What oh, about? Man. What about our friend Boris Johnson? Our friend, I tell you, Mister Teflon. Like Mate. and Kev, by the way, Kev Cunningham was right last week when we had him on the podcast. He was saying that because there was the by-election in North Shropshire. Yeah. And North Shropshire have voted Conservative for the last hundred and something years. Since that commuter railway exactly, started. Exactly. <laughs> there were Tories. And I'd, I'd say this part of the world was pretty Tory around then. Oh, too, very though. much so, yeah. Very much so. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And Kev was saying that he might lose that. And if he does, it's 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 serious problems. And he was right. And, and he was right. The Lib Dems won for the first time which is amazing. And it's interesting, I was listening to uh, an interview with some old Tory geezer and he was saying like it's three strikes and it's out for Boris. So one strike was the, they remember last week, a hundred of his MPs rebelled against the COVID vote. The COVID yeah. vote, that's what it yeah. was. The second strike is the, the by-election. But surely the third strike was the all party. the line of, of the parties. Well, you see, the funniest thing is it is true I, I agree with you. He, you know, the, the Tories are ruthless. They are extremely ruthless when it comes to leaders. And they yeah. have no sentiment. There's no sense of, well, he did a good job for us. But it does look... I'll tell you what we'll do, John. We'll come back to the UK next year, in the early in the early part of next year, and we'll do it properly. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about the UK. But I thought we were going to kind of ease into Christmas this week. Yes. Yeah. Then, I was looking forward to that as well. Yeah, no, no. And then we've got... An incredibly important event this happened this week. Central banks all around the world signaled that they have completely changed their tune on inflation. And this has profoundly affected financial markets, the perception of what's going to happen next year, the position of exchange rates, interest rates, all that sort of thing. So we've been, I thought we were going to wind down, but no, we have got a serious podcast to deliver this week, a serious one. And we're going to go to the States in a couple of minutes to talk to a serious individual about it. But central banks have changed their tune and said inflation now is the problem and they're going to react against it. Can I just ask you then, you know, you spoke, we spoke about uh, inflation throughout the year on and off. And you were saying that don't worry about inflation. It's it's all fine. But now the central banks are like worried a, about inflation. Don't worry about COVID. It'll go away. It's yeah. all fine. You're a bit of a Trump there. It'll be all fine. It'll just disappear. I was, yeah, yeah. Well, sometimes you can be wrong, John. Sometimes you can be wrong. No, I'll tell you what. So I thought that what would happen was inflation would come through because the economy would actually roar. But the central banks would take the view, okay, this is going to be transitory, not to worry about it, et cetera. But they are worried about it. So the question is then, it doesn't matter about right and wrong. The question is, 
if, as, as, as Keynes once said, and this is a really slimy way to slither out of this, as Keynes once said, <laughs> as Keynes once said, when the, he was asked, so he asked, what, what, what about, what's your opinion of this now, Mr. Keynes? And he said, he said, when the facts change, I change my mind, sir. What do you do? Yeah, that's fair enough. Well, like, so I tell you, my, my view, and still is, is that basically when you are faced with a pandemic and when you are faced with a lockdown and when you are faced with a closing down, the last thing you should be worried about is rising prices. What you should be worried about and should have been worried about in the last 24 months is collapsing prices, unemployment, no income, all that malarkey, right? Mm, yeah. Then I thought to myself, once that is over, it will there will be a spike up of inflation because of these supply chains, but that will come out in the wash as the economy begins to respond normally. Now, the difference between what I was saying and what the central banks were saying, they're saying, hold on a second, we're not going to wait until the economy goes back to that normality. We're going to try and bear down on inflation now. The problem with this, and it is a big problem, is that the way in which, and we're going to talk to Paul McCulley in a couple of minutes, you know, yeah. Paul, former chief economist of UBS. Preacher chief, Paul. Preacher Paul, right? And a man who really is, his, his, his advice and his counsel and his wisdom is sought after enormously in the United States. And it's just great that he's an old mate and he's come on and he'll chew the cud with us. But my sense at the time was that inflation, the differences between transitory inflation is if it's something that's sticky and something that's weird and it's to do with supply chains. And then as they open up, inflation falls. But what happens if inflation expectations rise? Now, I thought inflation expectations wouldn't rise. And then by expect, inflation expectations, I mean the idea that you'll say, well, actually, prices are going to rise next year. So I'm going to put up my own prices ahead of that, right? Mm. Now, what struck me last week, I'm not sure if we mentioned the podcast last week, I got a quote from a builder. Did I mention that? No, go right. ahead. We're going to do a little job. Like, you know, when we were talking about being in the woody stage of the recovery, <laughs> right? So the McWilliams household is in the woody stage you of the recovery. You were never a DIY man, though, uh, Mac, I know, I know. Fairness. Jesus, I actually, you should see, you should see the toolbox in this house. <laughs> I, it is. You are I, the I, toolbox. I, I, I told you, it's so that It is a screwdriver and a hammer, right? Under, under, you know what the U-bend in the kitchen thing is? Under the, under the, that's it. I have no fucking drills, no nothing, right? And Shan just looks at me and I say, look, man, don't look at me. I do the, I do the writing and the talking stuff, right? So anyway. Soft power. Soft power, exactly. The power of persuasion, John. The power of persuasion, the creativity and all that. Anyway, so the long and short of it is during the lockdown, Shan is looking at this bathroom and she's thinking we could convert that. We could put maybe an extra bedroom in there because you never know people stay. Anyway, the lo- I said, okay, grand, let's do it. We got a quote from a builder last week and it was fascinating, right? Because the builder said, like, here's the amount we th- I think it's going to cost. We don't know for sure. You know, we'd have to come in and have a deck around and price up everything. But he said, and it's an amazing thing. This is a builder. He said, in the current inflationary environment, and that sounds as if he's actually an economist from the IMF talking like that. Yeah. He, was, he said, when he was making the point, he said, in the current inflationary environment, I cannot be sure of what the actual price is going to be. Now, that means that on the ground, inflation expectations are bedding in. Because when you have a builder saying to you, like a subby, 
I can't actually give you. Now, of course, you might just see me coming and say, there's that big Egypt Mac Williams. I'm going to rip him off. But I don't yeah, think yeah, he is. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't be so sure. But, it, but if he was going to do that, he wouldn't give you the he wouldn't give you the warning sign before he ripped you off, right? So I don't think but he was, he was using that. your language back at you. He was using he was deploying <laughs> economist language back at me, which I thought was really, you know, it was like you and I talking about, you know, four four by twos and fucking bits of plywood, right? <laughs> anyway, anyway. The four by twos, they were a band. They were a punk band. Do you remember that? I actually think the Pogues might have come out of the 4B2s. The B-52s. No, the B-52s were an American band from from Athens, Georgia. The 4B2s, right, were an Irish punk band from Kilburn. And if I'm not wrong, they could have been the genesis of part of the Pogues. That's something, that's maybe a a Christmas question for the podcasters. The 4B2s, who were they? Anyway, but it's named the 4B2, that that piece of timber. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so to come back to the builder, right? What it means is that in the building industry, they are factoring in an idea that prices may rise rapidly in the next three or four months. So all jobs that are beginning to price today, they have to think about what it's going to cost in three months. Now, that is inflation expectations. That has not happened in this country for 40 years in most areas, has not happened at all. So and the reason it is, is because for 40 years in most areas, apart from house prices, mm. inflation expectations were zero, right? That people said, I'll give you a price this week. Nobody thought that price is going to change in three weeks' time or four weeks or four m- months' time. Whereas now, subbies are saying, I'm not so sure anymore. Now, that's the worry. So the question then is, are the central banks doing the right thing? Are they seeing this and thinking, hold on a second. We need to bear down on that. Now, then the question is, John, will a quarter percent increase in the interest rate change inflation expectations or is that too little, right? And the reason I tell you this is the key thing for economics, the key metric on interest rates is what they call the real interest rate, Mm. which is the difference between the rate of interest and the rate of inflation. Now, at the moment in the United States, the rate of inflation is hitting 7%. Six or seven percent. Right. The rate of interest is zero or maybe one percent, which means the real rate of interest is minus six percent. So that means that monetary conditions are unbelievably generous. That means that borrowing now in an environment of high interest rates is a total no brainer. So the question then is if the Americans or the European Central Bank, the last rate of inflation in Europe was five percent. Now, I think that's transitory, but it doesn't matter what I think, right? The rate of interest in Europe. It's close to zero, so it's a, you know half a percent. So what you have, you've got real rates of interest of minus five percent in Europe, minus seven percent in America. This is kind of unprecedented. So Sorry, the- I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure if I'm following you. If the rate of interest is five percent, how do you mean it's minus five percent? Okay, so what you have, it's the it's the rate of inflation is the rate at which prices rise. Yes. So if we think that the rate of inflation is going to be 5% this year, right? It means that all, and, and today's prices are 100 cent or 100, 100 euros. It yeah. means that all prices next year are going to be 105 euros. That's, that's the inflation rate. If the rate of interest is 1%, it means that the rate of interest next year is going to be 101. So the rate of yeah. price increases is 105. The rate of interest is 101. So what you would be, therefore, what you're doing is you are being paid to borrow. 
because prices are rising much quicker than interest rates are rising. So the cost of borrowing in real terms is negative. And if the cost of borrowing in real terms is negative, it means that all sorts of assets and all sorts of speculations and all sorts of punts that you engage in are not really going to cost you anything, right? Because your wages and your prices are going to be higher than that you pay back Right. So if you think about that, right, it that's means, if wages stay in line with inflation, with this five percent, which which, inflation. which which they should do, which they should do. And this is what right. our builder is saying to me. He's saying, listen, man, my my brickies and my carpenters are putting up their prices. So they're putting up their wages. So what he's right. saying is that it's all coming through now. So the idea is that interest rates, real interest rates, which is the rate of inflation minus the rate of interest, the nominal rate of interest need to be positive or zero for the economy to be in equilibrium. That means that central banks have to raise interest rates faster to try and get back to equilibrium. And if that is the case, what we're seeing now from the central banks who are putting us on alert, they're saying, hold on, guys, this era of low interest rates is over. The question then is, how much could they put interest rates up? Because I'll give you another example. At the moment, Turkey, I don't know if you've been following, the Turkish lira has collapsed. Yeah. And everybody's saying, and the Turkish central bank is cutting interest rates because Erdogan doesn't want interest rates to rise. But they're saying it's collapsing because the real rate of interest is negative in Turkey. At the moment, the rate of inflation is 21% in Turkey. The rate of interest is 14%. So the real rate of interest is a negative 7%. That's not a million miles away from the United States at the moment. And yet the Turkish lira is collapsing because there's no support. So what I'm saying is the central banks need to begin to figure out where they want real interest rates to be. As long as there's a pandemic, as long as the economies are still suffering, and we're going into another one, as we know, another iteration of this, I think real rates of interest will still be negative. But the question is, how much negative will they be? Is it going to be 5 6 7% or is it going to be 2 or 3%? If it's 2 or 3%, if that's what central banks deem they need to support the real economy, then interest rates could rise quite dramatically over this next couple of years. And if that were the case, John, it would profoundly change the global economy. In what way? In a way in which I'm going to go to Paul McCulley to allow him to elucidate on how it could work, right? Because Paul understands this business. So let's go to Laguna Beach, which would be much better than, I'll tell you, be much better than stuck here. <laughs> right? Let's go and talk to Paul McCulley, former head of the investment committee at PIMCO, biggest bond for, fund in the world, a man who knows this stuff inside out. Let's go to Paul. Let's talk about what all this means for central banks. Could be a little bit wonky, by the way. I'll just warn you ahead of time. For central banks, for interest rates, for assets, for all that stuff, and for property markets, because there is a link between what we're talking about, which sounds kind of esoteric, and the price of apartments or the price of rents in Dublin. So let's explore all that in Laguna Beach with Paul McCulley. While John and I are sitting here on the almost the eve of Christmas, in the cold, in the dark, the middle of the afternoon, it's already dark, yeah. We are now joined by Paul McCulley in Laguna Beach, who has done that really unpleasant thing, which is to turn the camera 
of his laptop around and show us the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. In all its early, in its early morning complete splendor. With, complete with palm trees. With palm trees as opposed to Christmas trees. Okay. Yeah. Paul, how are you? And tell me, how is Southern California? Uh, good, David. Good to see you. Uh, and uh, it's uh, really pleasant here in Southern California. It is cold by the seasons, but... Nothing to complain about. Okay. <laughs> Damn right, there's nothing to complain about. Exactly, exactly. John and I are thinking of uh, just shifting the podcast to Southern California. I'm sure at some stage we'll find a home for it. Paul, I want to get really straight into this thing. In the last two or three weeks, there has been a profound shift in the perception of the Federal Reserve, the rate of inflation in the United States, the rate of interest in the United States, maybe a policy that's been in place for the guts of 14 years is now running its course. It's going to change into something else. You wrote in a little note you sent to me, which was brilliant. You said, David, when I cut through all the sort of wonky stuff, right, what we're talking about now, what the Federal Reserve is doing now is choosing how much pain to inflict on Wall Street and how to do it. Explain that to me. Explain that to the, all the listeners. We've had the easiest monetary policy of our lifetime the last two years, David. It truly is extraordinary. Uh, And it was appropriate because of the pandemic. And on top of that easiest monetary policy of our lifetime, we added the easiest fiscal policy uh, of our lifetime. So for the first time, literally in our lifetime, we've had the monetary tool and the fiscal tool pushed right to the limit. And it worked. It worked in that we're having an incredible V-shaped economic recovery, which is giving us inflationary pressures. And that is a good thing. The problem is that you can have too much of a good thing. And the Fed needs to seriously pull back on the monetary throttle. And doing that is going to inflict pain on Wall Street. And by inflicting pain on Wall Street, you will ultimately lean against too vibrant demand on High Street or Main Street. But essentially, monetary policy works through Wall Street. And if you need to throttle back, Wall Street is going to be first to take the hit. Okay, so explain that to me. So it's the idea that you cut interest rates, you make liquidity ample, that drives up stock prices, that drives down bond prices, that makes people who own assets feel rich, and those people who own assets, once they feel rich, begin to spend. So we're kind of talking about still kind of trickle-down economics. Is that, is that where we're at? Yeah, we are. In fact, it's a very interesting way to put it, David, because monetary policy... The dirty little secret of monetary policy, it's trickle-down economics because monetary policy influences what is known as financial conditions. And then financial conditions impact Main Street, the real economy. And that's just how the game works. And it is trickle-down economics. Physical policy, on the other hand, isn't, but that's how monetary policy works. Uh, and it worked beautifully. It made the rich fabulously richer during the last couple of years and has created uh, exuberance 
uh, of an extraordinary nature on Wall Street. And that's exacerbated our income and wealth inequality. So it worked, but it worked too well for the long haul. And the Fed's got to rein it back in at this stage of the game. So if you were, let's say you and I 20 years ago working together in investment banking, or let's say, for example, if you were on the investment committee of PIMCO, where you served for many, many years with great distinction, Paul, what would you be telling people, investors to do right now? And what markets would you think, well, I'd be getting out of that if I were you, or I'd be getting into this if I were you? What would you be, what would you be saying to people? My biggest message right now, David, is learn how to take profits. And that's really, really difficult for a lot of people. The human being is wired to be a momentum player. It goes back to the old one-liner from Will Rogers. What stocks should I buy? Well, buy stocks that are going up. If they're not going up, <laughs> don't buy them. Right. Um, That's the pretty human simple rule. <laughs> is wired to be a momentum player. Yeah. They tend to buy more rich and yeah. sell more cheap. That's just human nature. So my biggest counsel to investors, whether it's inter- institutional investors or retail investors these days, is don't be afraid to book some winnings. It's not any different than being in a casino. Putting a couple hundred quid into your sock when you're doing really, really well is not a bad idea. Okay, so listen, so with that in mind. But very difficult. But very, very difficult. difficult Because it's emotionally difficult. You've kind of a feel of ownership. And also humans are hardwired for optimism. We kind of think, you know, it's not going to happen to me. And this time it's different. Now, let's look at one of the arguments we're hearing quite a bit, which says the Fed, and you know these guys, you know Jay Powell, you know a lot of people on the Fed board, are caught because America is so highly leveraged in financial markets that they risk precipitating a dramatic downturn if they do too much. So they're kind of been caught by the balls, by the effervescence that they themselves have inflated. What do you think of that? I think there's a lot to be said for that assessment. I wouldn't go to the extreme that some are going to, which is basically saying that the Fed can never seriously tighten monetary policy because it will correct Wall Street too viciously. I don't take that extreme, but I do think that the uh, the Fed has to hold Wall Street's hand a lot more than I like through this process, because certainly we need to deflate Wall Street relative to the real economy, which doesn't necessarily mean that we have to deflate Wall Street a great deal, absolutely. But Wall Street is massively ahead of the real economy, and we need the real economy to catch up so as that the valuation between Wall Street and Main Street makes sense in order to rebalance, if you will, the valuation of the two places. The Fed has to be very gingerly in how it handles Wall Street. And that bothers me personally. Quite frankly, it personally offends me that our central bank uh, has to hold the hand of Wall Street. But that's kind of where we are and that you don't want the Fed to uh, effectively lock up Wall Street with its move towards less accommodative monetary policy. At the same time, you want to move towards less accommodative 
policy. So in some respects, the Fed's job now at managing Wall Street is very similar to your job as a dad in trying to manage your children. The bank of dad is always open, but they we are changing the terms. I'm sure you've gone through that I, a I, few times in your lifetime. Particularly at the, during the, as we run up to the Christmas week, that is particularly the bank of dad has been plundered uh, wholesale. Uh, the terms and conditions do not apply apparently to anybody. <laughs> and ultimately it's just, but it's all good. But I, 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 I love that analogy, right? So basically the Fed has got to just say, calm down a wee bit and you're going to take pain and certain overvalued stocks and, and assets are going to fall in value. And can you then explain to me, within the least wonkish way, what does QE actually do to financial markets? What does it do to risk? What does it do to return? What does it do to reward? What does it do to the, the framework of financial markets? Because we're looking at a period where we're going towards maybe QE becoming a thing of the past. So what does it do first? QE is a fascinating subject. We've only had two episodes of serious QE in our lifetime, which would be the financial crisis and obviously the pandemic crisis. And it used to be considered to be extraordinary. And now we've used it uh, two recessions in a row. So I think it's going to become part of the toolkit on an enduring basis. Uh, But what QE essentially does is two things. And I want to stress this, two things. First and foremost, when a central bank embarks on QE, it is a commitment device that they will not increase the policy interest rate as long as QE is in force. Okay. Okay. So it basically says, hold your eye, we will basically underwrite everything for a year, two, three years, whatever it happens to be. However long the QE is in place, it means that hiking interest rates is verboten. It will not happen. So essentially, for the financial markets, it's taking out the risk of interest rate hikes. So it's making the interest rate bet a one-way bet. Uh, They can go down, but they can't go up. And that has a profound effect on valuation of financial assets when policy rate risk becomes one-sided as opposed to two-sided. So that's the first channel, I think, how QE works is a commitment device to put rate hikes on hold as long as QE is in place. The second way that QE works is it actually takes interest rate risk out of the marketplace. It is actually buying duration and taking it out of the marketplace. So that's the supply-demand effect. So QE works in two ways. It's in expectations and supply and demand. Expectations is, as long as we're doing this, there ain't going to be no rate hiking. And as long as we're doing this on a flow of funds perspective, we're taking risk out of the market. So QE works by making Wall Street a less risky place along two fronts. Paul, can I ask you, I'm going to switch this to a discussion that's very live in Ireland at the moment. It's become ideological on one level, but it's real on another level, which is uh, in the Irish property market in the last 24, 36 months, particularly since the pandemic, 
we have seen the emergence of big pension funds basically becoming builders, right? Large pension funds becoming builders, building rental properties that have a guaranteed yield of 4% or 3% or 5%. And is this also a function of QE? That basically people who were never in this building apartments game now are playing an interest rate arbitrage game and QE has profoundly changed not just financial markets, but all sorts of markets. And in, in the case of Dublin, residential tenancy markets. I think you're very much on to something there. And it's not so much QE by itself. It's QE with zero rates. And the zero rates is more powerful, if you will. Okay. And it leads to what I think we would call the financialization of all income streams. Okay, you let's focus on that. Let's focus on that because that is something that a lot of people here are trying to get their heads around, the financialization of all income streams. What does that mean? Let's say in the context of a block of 30 apartments that have a stream of income that I'm renting or John's renting or you're renting, so we're paying rent every right. month. So that's, that, that, that stream of income flows into some vehicle. Now, what happens after that? Well, tr- traditionally, that sort of investment activity would be in the private markets. I mean, for instance, you could buy a four apartment complex, you know, or building yourself and rent it out, you know, yeah. and have an investment and so forth that, uh, and essentially the financialization of it is essentially taking that cash flow stream and coming from the apartment into the open market to the standpoint, it becomes a security. And I think zero interest rates lead to that development along with technology. So it's both factors. We have the technology to do it, but we also have the incentive to do it because pension funds and just individuals are having difficulty getting any income in their investment portfolios. They have great capital gains, uh, but they don't have income. So essentially the search for income or the search for yield or the chase for a yield leads effectively to the rapid securitization of all cash flows. Because that's what Wall Street is, is simply a security that represents the net present value of a cash flow. Uh, And so every cash flow is subject to being picked up by Wall Street and turned into uh, a security. Into something else. Yeah. In fact, just a couple days ago, and I haven't read the story yet, I just saw the headline. It looks like that Bruce Springsteen has sold his library of songs that he wrote to Sony for $50 million. $500 million. Not 50. Was it 500? Yeah, yeah. Now, okay, let's, let's actually explain to me and the listeners how this works. So Bruce Springsteen writes all these songs. He writes, I mean, John is a big Bruce Springsteen fan. I am. I'm not a great one, but it doesn't matter. He writes all these songs and there's still people buying those songs, right? On Spotify now or whatever. So there's an income accruing to the boss, right? Let's start there. Then what happens? How does Sony make money on this? How does it, how do they end up owning it? Who buys it? Who sells it? Every time John hits the river on Spotify, where's the money going? Okay. <laughs> And we're going to um, end here because this is a really nice way to end. Okay. 
Well, I, I'm glad you corrected me that it was 500, not uh, not 50, because I was stunned when I saw the headline. It was so low because his library is so extensive. Exactly. And Actually, I'm so not even it, sure it, if it's the full library he sold. I think it's only half oh, the no, library. No, no, no. We're going to get into, it's going to get, this is what I call the nose tapping. Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> we're, well, like, I went, actually, I was talking to Bruce myself. Look, go let's, on, let's talk on, about the on, finance. On. So 500 million is paid from whom to who? Okay. Start out with the notion you have the songs yeah. that generate a cash flow. Yeah. That, that. that is that is where the action starts. There okay. is a cash flow, which is people buying the songs. Bruce owns the songs. So heretofore, the cash flow goes to Bruce. Bruce. No different in some respects if he owned an apartment and rent it to you, yeah. and then your rent would come in as a cash flow, and he sits there, and he owns the song or the house, and you are the source of the cash flow. So that's where the economics start. And then the issue is that someone will come to Bruce and say, that's an interesting cash flow, and we would like to buy that cash flow from you. Okay. No different than buying the dividend stream of, of a the apartment. company. Okay. I don't know if the apartment. the apartment. Right. Okay. So, so effectively, an investor wants to buy the cash flow. And then the issue is what interest rate do you discount the cash flow? Or in real estate terms, we talk about capitalization rates. So essentially, it is nothing more than computing what's the net present value of okay. that cash flow. Okay, so somebody has said present value of the future income of Bruce Springsteen's back catalogue is 500 million. How they figure that out is a combination of interest rates and obviously the robustness of the cash flow itself. Bingo, so you're then, a good analyst. Man. So then, <laughs> I've done this before. So then, so then Bruce gets his 500 million. Yep. Sony, Sony, the owner now, gets a certain amount of income every year that over, let's say, a 20-year period, they value at 500 million. But clearly in their estimation, they're getting 500 million plus something else because it's worth more to them. It's not necessarily worth more to them. It could be worth the same thing to them that it's worth to Springsteen. It's just they're in a position where they want to have an enduring asset on their Okay, that books. just pays them. Now, why would, so why would they do that? What's, what's the, what is their interest in paying, like, let's get it down, in paying good money today for money tomorrow? They do that every day, David. Every time they buy a bond or a stock or a commercial building or invest in a project, it's essentially putting out money for the expectation of A, a return on the money, and B, the return of the money. Right. That's just okay. what investing is so, all about, and that's the business they're in. And essentially, Bruce is monetizing. So let's go back to the Dublin apartment. So the Dublin apartment is basically the bricks and mortar equivalent of the Bruce Springsteen back catalog. So yeah. let's say the German pension fund buys the the, all these uh, all these cash flows, which are in effect people's homes, right? 
And yeah. then they just sit on them or do they trade them or what do they do? Because people are really interested here. People are not talking like, okay, what the fuck happens then? Uh, they may sit on them. That would be called a buy and hold investor. Yeah. Or they, they may trade them. And the truth of the matter is, if there's a public market, there will be both. There'll be buy and holders, but it will also be repriced every day and repriced to interest rates on that day. So therefore, they become just like the stock market. They're highly sensitive to interest rates because interest rates are the cat's meow in discounting all future cash flows. So this is where I want to get to. So I'm listening to the Dave McWilliams podcast, and I'm sitting in an apartment block in Dublin. And I'm working in, let's say I'm working in the music business, so I don't get what's going on. Is it possible that my rent in the future is going to be affected by the rates of interest that we're talking about now and the Fed and whether they go raise rates or not through the mechanism of financialization? That's what I want to get to. The short answer is yes. Okay. And that the moment you turn every creator of cash flows, including an apartment, yeah. into a security, yeah. then the market value of that cash flow will fluctuate with interest rates and the fundamental price of maintaining the apartment wouldn't necessarily change whatsoever. So as interest rates are coming down, valuations are going up. That will tend to put upper pressure on rents. And that's the case here in the United States right now. It's one of our biggest sources of inflation risk moving forward, which is rents, which are about a third of the CPI. That's where you get your connection between Wall Street and Main Street. And that if Wall Street has to correct valuations because interest rates move up, yep. then it will tend to have a dampening effect on literal rents. So actually the person who doesn't give a rats behind about Wall Street has to pay attention from the standpoint of projecting his own rent on his own apartment. Yes. And so this is where financialization becomes not a conceptual idea in the Financial Times editorial or on screens of traders, but actually on real people's lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, I appreciate the financialization that's gone on during our career. We had the subprime problem, which was a financialization problem. So it's had a lot of sort of warts on it, but the technology makes it in inevitable. But the more financialization you have, then more effectively Wall Street and High Street are living in the same bed. Except Wall Street gets paid a lot more. Yes, they do. And that's a problem, not economically, but for democracy itself. Paul, we will leave it there. A wonderful tour de force from Bruce Springs. Who, who, who thought we'd go from Bruce Springsteen Bonds, John Plain, the river, okay, to apartments in Dublin, to financialization, to democracy. That's what you Good get. Deal. Paul. Good deal, man. Talk to Good you, deal, man. Great stuff. All right. Good Cheers, to see you. Paul. Thanks, Cheers, Paul. Thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Preacher Paul. Straight yeah. from Laguna Beach. <laughs> I know, he's great. Well, you know that Paul's dad was a Baptist preacher. Yes, I know, I know, yeah, yeah. In Virginia or South Carolina, and he just has that thing. He has that. You can imagine him, as he says himself, preaching from the pulpit, but putting a crisp 20 into, <laughs> into the offering just for insurance policy, just in case the message doesn't go right. And and actually, by the way, I you know, I... I spent a few months in Laguna Beach, which is, it is a lovely part of the world. You know, he was, sh- he was showing us the, the palm trees and the ocean, and it is gorgeous, Laguna Beach. And actually a shout out to Brinzer and Shano, who are still over there. <laughs> they are my mates that were, that were over there. Brinzer great and Shano. Brilliant. And they're yeah, in Laguna crack. Beach, are they? Well, uh, so yeah, they're in that area. South of LA, some sort of... It's about, is it about 50, 60 miles south of LA? Yeah. My problem is my teeth aren't straight enough to live there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and your skin is way too red. Exactly. <laughs> Pink. Pink. Hey, listen. Well, come here. He was going on about Springsteen there, oh, which, yeah. I find, which I find fascinating. I don't know the details of, of the deal at all, but as you said, the blue collar guy to sell out. Is he selling out or or is he just cashing in on an industry that is... It's changing so rapidly because what will happen now with Springsteen songs, I would imagine, as you always say, what what is Sony going to do? Sony are going to sweat their asset and get as much money out of it as possible. So what I think you might start seeing now is loads of Springsteen songs cropping up in ads and in movies and in all sorts of stuff. And I wonder how much for say, because Springsteen used to be quite precious like Dylan and like a lot of the other guys, precious with their with their songs and their art. And, and, you know, they don't want it to be associated with, I don't know, Coca-Cola or whatever. But we may start hearing the river as the soundtrack for selling river rock water or something, you know? Yeah, well, I, mean, I mean, I sure wouldn't. Like, the three interesting things. One is for the music fan. And it's about the integrity of the art, right? And if you were a Springsteen fan based on... Ashbury Park, was that it, in New Jersey? Asbury Park, yeah. Asbury Park and the working class, the blue-collar idea, right? That's the first thing. Second thing is, 
Springsteen may be proving to be much more financially astute than half of Wall Street. He has taken his chips off the table, right? Yeah. Now think about this. Yeah. You know, a, maybe someone like Springsteen who's kind of, he's got more common sense than you think. He's thinking, hold on a second. These guys are prepared to pay me half a billion dollars for my back catalog. I'm not going to be making music for the rest of my life. I'm going to be doing other bits and pieces, but I may, why not take the cash now? What Springsteen does is he's transferred Springsteen risk from himself to Sony. And he's saying, you guys now shoulder the risk, right? You guys go and make money. I'm, I've taken my cash. It may, there could be the Springsteen moment in financial markets, right? This could well be, John. This could go down <laughs> the annals of history. And you heard it first here in the Dave McWilliams podcast, right? <laughs> there is a great apocryphal story about Joe Kennedy Sr., JFK's dad. Now, Joe Kennedy Sr., do you remember in the great crash of 1928? I remember it main, well, yeah. Well, of course, right. But the main players in that were Irish-American brokers. There was a cabal of Irish-American brokers, and it's a very interesting story, right? The reason is the following. The big blue blood Anglo-Saxon wasp banks didn't employ Irish or Jewish or Italian traders, right? So the Irish and the Jews and the Italians were regarded as second-class citizens for the big posh banks in the United States in the 1920s. So what they did was the Irish got together and they became brokers and speculators because they weren't allowed on the floor of J.P. Morgan or any of those things because they were for posh wasps, right? And many of the markets were cornered by these Irish-American speculators, okay? One of which was Joe Kennedy, JFK's dad. And their major share of interests were radio shares and electricity shares. They're the right. markets they cornered. And they were the go-go industries because they were the new industries. So they were like the tech of the time. They were like, yeah, the, meta- yeah, yeah. like the metaverse at the time was uh, radio <laughs> industries, right? So they cornered it. But the, the, the story goes that one morning in, I think, July of 1928, so seven or eight weeks before the crash, Joe Kennedy is getting his shoes shined on Broadway. And the shoe shine boy says to Mr. Kennedy, Mr. Kennedy, can I advise you on certain stocks to buy? And Kennedy said, when the shoe shine boy is telling you what to do, you know it's time to get out. And maybe, maybe Springsteen's the same idea. When the rock and roll guy is saying, I'm taking my chips off the table, you professionals, you can do what you want, but I'm a guitar player and I've got a sense that the value is now, that maybe the Springsteen moment is the moment of truth. And it does reflect back perfectly well onto what Paul was talking about interest rates and what we were talking about the change in the environment, that there comes a moment when common sense rather than financial alchemy should be your dominant idea. And maybe Springsteen's proving that. But Bowie did this a few years ago with the Bowie bonds. So what, what's the difference between the Bowie bonds and the Bruce bonds? There's very, very little difference, except for the fact that Bowie was always ahead of his time. I'm not sure Springsteen, sure. right? I'm not sure Springsteen would have been an artist, which you said was ahead of his time, right? If you ever see in- interviews with Bowie about the internet, he did an amazing interview with Jeremy Paxman. And Paxman was being a pompous prick and was basically saying, like, you're just a rock and roll guy. What do you know? And Bowie was saying, it was about 1998 or 99. He yeah. was saying, this is going to change the way music is delivered. This is going to change the way 
the industry works. This is going to change the major labels. This is going to democratize music. This is, you know, all these things that came to pass. And Bowie was always an innovator. And just the Bowie bonds, which were about 15 or 16 years ago, showed that he was a financial innovator, as well as a cultural innovator, as well as a musical innovator, as well as an artistic innovator. I think Springsteen, the difference is, has never really been, this is my opinion, an innovator. But he's always been driven... Controversial. Yeah, but come on. But he's always been driven... (laughs) Springsteen's always been grounded, John, in common sense, in sitting in a bar, talking to guys, saying, does this make sense? And maybe his blue-collar, working-class credentials have come in here. He said, you know what? All those posh guys on Wall Street, they can do what they want. I'm going to take my chips off and let's see who's right, them or me. Happy Christmas, Bosco. And yes, Mark, happy Christmas to you, but also happy Christmas to everyone. And thanks a mill for, for sticking with us all year. We've had a bit of a blast. We've covered some, we've covered a lot of ground, actually. We have covered a lot of ground. And, By the uh, way, John and I are condemned to stick with each other. That's the problem. <laughs> no choice for us. But thanks a mill. Thanks a mill to all our listeners and to all our Patreons. And we will talk to you, but we're only going to have one podcast this week rather than two and one podcast next week rather than two, because we all need a break. You need a break from us. We need a break from each other. And we'll be back in the new year with the full two podcasts a week. But between now and new year, happy Christmas. Take care, guys. Bye. Cheers. John, it's Crimbo. Cheers. Here's the sales pitch. You can get, can you imagine anything better than this? (laughs) You can get 12 months Patreon subscription to the Dave McQueen's podcast, which is Two podcasts ad-free every week. You get two macroeconomic courses. The economic courses I give in Trinity, more or less online. Which are humdingers. Which are humdingers, okay. Which we actually won a prize. Indeed. We won a prize. Indeed. Swati Teacher of the Year. But we get all the reading lists. You know the reading lists I go on about? All the reading lists, the lecture notes, videos, the whole thing. And you get these, we're going to introduce this year, an online Q&A. Once a fortnight, I'm going to answer the questions that people have. This is all on Patreon. Yeah, that's, that's really good. Yeah, no, it will be really good. And it'll, it'll create a, a huge community of people. And this is all on Patreon. And you get a 10% discount if you sign up in December. So that's patreon.com forward slash Dave McWilliams. And if you sign up now to Patreon, you get 12 months for the price of 11 months for an annual subscription and or you can look at it by getting 10% off for the whole thing. And the key thing is, it's not just the podcast. It's the learning, it's the community, it's the engagement. It's all together. We're going to go up a level yeah. in 2022. Do you know what as well? It's a bloody brilliant Christmas present. You're absolutely right. Right.